if you can get your if you can get your Fornieri Language of Liberty book out, because that's what we're going to be looking at. This schedule has uh, the evening session missing from it. If you, your master syllabus should indicate that we have a fourth uh, session tonight. Uh, we have it uh, a bit long today. In other words, we meet four times formally as opposed to three times in part because tomorrow is Sunday. We don't have anything in the morning. Uh, and we don't have any formal in-class sessions, as it were. We just have the tours just. We have the spectacular tour of the battlefield with uh, Jim McPherson in the afternoon. And then, uh, weather permitting, then as well as uh, after uh, uh, dinner, as well as his uh, afternoon lecture. So I guess we do have that one formal session tomorrow. But so, in, in other words, since we have it a bit light tomorrow, we're pushing it a little hard uh, today. So we do have four sessions: two this morning, uh, one in the afternoon, late afternoon at four, and then after dinner at seven thirty. Uh, so, FYI, this this was lacking that evening session. All right. I am missing the books. Here we go. Our topic today is the rule of law, slavery, and the future of self-government. Uh, fairly large uh, issues uh, to be dealt with there. Um, and one thing I want us to, to think about, uh, the, these uh, three sessions uh, are going to be constantly reminding us of how they're connected, uh, the thread that runs through them. I thought Chris Flannery did a good job of, uh, of, of uh, tying those together, uh, the founding, the Declaration of Independence, Civil War in particular, the Gettysburg Address, what Lincoln does there, and then King's I Have a Dream speech. We're going to see in today's readings, especially, I would argue, uh, this first uh, speech of 1838, we're going to see uh, the subject of the rule of law and, in particular, uh, exceptions to that, namely civil disobedience. This will be a nice preparation for us. I have to talk louder. All right. This will be a nice preparation for us uh, for our discussion of uh, Martin Luther King, Jr. Still more? Man, I feel, I feel like I'm echoing in my own head up here. Uh, when we get to Martin Luther King Jr., we'll see uh, a fairly rigorous uh, defense of times in which the American people, according to King, ought not to obey the law. Uh, and that is uh, clearly something contrary to what uh, Lincoln argues for uh, in his speech. What is the title of his speech? The 1838 speech. It's about okay. So it's a it's about perpetuation. It's about keeping something going, uh, and the signal way to do that, of course, in his mind, uh, is to obey. 
rather than to disobey. Uh, and he all, of course, has to deal with the question of, well, when uh, or what do you do when uh, the laws that you are usually obeying uh, are not good? Should you obey those? Okay, an obvious question. Are, are there exceptions? And we'll get to that. Uh, let me ask a more general question. And this is a question that will be, I think, answered, or at least Lincoln attempts to answer it, in both the Perpetuation Address of 1838 to the Springfield Lyceum and the 1842 Temperance Address. Uh, but what is the connection between, uh, this is, I ask this rhetorically, in other words, just to keep this in the back of your minds, what's the connection between uh, the rule of law, uh, what I'm calling the future of self-government, uh, and slavery, or more specifically, emancipation? Uh, uh, my argument will be that Lincoln's political reason for being is to remind or teach the American people about the connection between those three things. Uh, another way to put it is, what is at stake in the late 1830s and 1840s, and does this change when we get into that uh, immediate antebellum period, you know, that tumultuous decade of the 1850s? Uh, what is at stake in America, according to Lincoln? Uh, and uh, because of that, and however you answer that, what does he think the nation should be attending uh, or attending to? What should the nation be focused on? Uh, what should they consider uh, the most salient, the most leaping dangers that threaten uh, our way of life, our way of governing ourselves? That's intended to be a rhetorical question, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, sorry. Go ahead, chime in. Well, he says on page 27, at what point then is the approach of danger to be expected? I answer... If it ever reaches us, it must spring up from among us. Good. Self-destruction. As a nation of free men, right, we must live forever, forever or die by suicide, he claims. So interestingly enough, for Lincoln, he thinks uh, that free people have to think differently about what threatens their freedom. Uh, up, up until now people would typically think that the danger to your regime is from what? What's the obvious danger? From some other regime, right? Uh, historically speaking, uh, which is not to say, of course, historic spe historically speaking, there were never any other civil wars uh, that dangers didn't crop up from within. In other words, the danger of revolution or the danger of faction. When one group in a city, uh, city-state or, or, or nation-state, decides to seize uh, power, uh, at the expense of this other group. Uh, but, but Lincoln seems to be suggesting that the peculiar danger, the danger that is unique to a free society, is precisely a danger that is generated by freedom itself. Okay? Uh, it's the, it's, the, it's uh, the way some people would say, uh, we suffer the vice of our own virtue. Okay? It's our very freedom that creates the conditions for a thriving, prosperous society, but also poses the greatest danger if that freedom isn't used well, isn't taken care of. Uh, and I think in the 1838 address to the Springfield Lyceum and the 1842 uh, temperance address to the Washingtonians, uh, I think in these two speeches, Lincoln addresses this very issue. Uh, a danger he believes is rising from within, and he's calling 
uh, our attention to it, and in particular his immediate audience's attention to it, so that they can be aware. Uh, and we'll have to ask, well, why, why does Lincoln have to do this? Why, do, why isn't this obvious uh, to people? And, and we'll look at that when we, when we uh, consider the address uh, specifically. Um, Alan Gelzo yesterday talked about uh, the difference between Lincoln's uh, kind of growth on the one hand and a change of principle on the other. And he argued that in some ways, yes, we could see that Lincoln grew, especially in terms of his religious uh, convictions, uh, starting out as a skeptic, uh, what, is he, what he called crudely an infidel, someone who lacks fides, lacks faith. Uh, and, and certainly by the time you get to his presidential years and, and clearly on display in the Gettysburg and, of course, the second inaugural address, someone who, uh, who can't seem to speak politically without the biblical cadences and allusions and references to both the Old and New Testament. Uh, that's growth. But on the other hand, and I agree with Alan here, uh, we don't really see, I don't think uh, you can make the argument that Lincoln changed in terms of his principles that that kind of growth we don't see. We see actually fairly early on, and I would argue as early as this first speech, 1838, we see uh, Lincoln having a fairly capacious view of the requirements of freedom, the requirements of a self-governing people, uh, and what it takes uh, to maintain this kind of life. And, and I would argue that we would see, we don't see a change in how Lincoln views the, the American system. Uh, that his tactics might change, his strategy might change, uh, the conditions might change, and they're with the strategies. But in terms of uh, underlying principles and the way he views the regime, the way he views America, I don't see uh, uh, any change there. I see a tremendous consistency, and we see it fairly early on, uh, as early as this, uh, this speech in 1838. A reminder, in 1838, Lincoln is serving in his second term uh, in the State House, a state representative, he serves between 1834 and 1842. Uh, his profession by this point is uh, the law. He's a practicing attorney. Um, and his politics are Whigian politics. He's a Whig. Uh, the Republican Party, of course, isn't uh, around yet. Uh, the two major parties are the Whig Party and the Democratic Party. Um, what else do I want to say in terms of background here? Uh, the only other point I would make is uh, Martin Van Buren is now uh, president, and he gives a similar speech uh, to Lincoln. He talks about perpetuation, and, and he talked about it in a speech uh, just one year prior. Uh, and it seems like, or at least my research uh, establishes in my mind, uh, that Van Buren's speech, Lincoln uses as a model for his own speech, but he doesn't give, he doesn't draw the same conclusions that Van Buren does with regards to the state of the nation. Uh, Lincoln is a little more concerned uh, than Van Buren is, uh, and we'll see why in a second here. All right, uh, so this is a speech about uh, perpetuation. Let's look at this in particular here. Um, what is the threat? that he uh, identifies fairly specifically at the beginning of this speech. Um, if if uh, we're a nation that will live forever or die by suicide, uh, what, are the, what, what is the warning sign that Lincoln sees uh, on the rise uh, in the United States? On page 27 of the 
Thanks. So mob law or this mobocratic spirit, uh, mob law is a contradiction of terms, uh, of course, contradiction in terms, an increasing disregard for law. Uh, you think about the seeds of this zone, perhaps in the Boston Tea Party, right? Uh, it disturbed George Washington to see that this was a way in which the American people were expressing their contempt or disgust with uh, British policies. He didn't mind the contempt. What he minded is how they expressed themselves, that they seized property that did not belong to them. Uh, they were toppling statues. Uh, again, it, they were taking freedom and turning it into license. Remember our discussion in John Locke about the dis difference between liberty and true freedom on the one hand and licentiousness or license on the other. Uh, in short, uh, what's American? As American as apple pie and, and baseball, uh, being a little ana anachronistic with baseball here, but uh, uh, it's mobs, right? Uh, that mobs, uh, even though they were seeking a good thing, right? mobs typically are not arbitrary in the sense of what their goal is. It's the means that are what makes them so much of a danger. Mobs, uh, in this case, uh, w when they disregard law, what are they seeking that I claim is actually a good thing? This, is, this makes it so difficult to deal with. What? Justice, Justice yeah. Uh, the problem it, with, with mobs is, is precisely the fact that what they are doing is a good thing in terms of their goal or their aim. They seek justice. But the means they adopt, Lincoln argues, are subversive of that very end. Go ahead. Washington's response to the Whiskey Rebellion, that it was permissible to have these mobs throughout the 18th century um, that they had in rebellion against England. But once you have a representative government, you have to rely on that. That's right. That's right. Uh, the problem with the Whiskey Rebellion, again, was not that they had a, a, it wasn't that they didn't have a good cause. It was that they thought that the way you address it is through revolutionary means. But by virtue of a revolution, once you've established institutions to deal with injustice, you have to trust in those institutions, even when those institutions seem to uh, be slow in their operation, right? Courts, where you actually have to find the perpetrator and establish your case among a jury of uh, the perpetrator's uh, peers, you have to bring in evidence. Uh, these things take time. Uh, changing laws takes time. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Abide by, or whether it be by the system of voting, you have to abide by that decision. You can then go to the legal basis to try to change it, but you have to abide by it. 
Yeah, we're going to look at what Lincoln claims is this, this, uh, the decision we have to make of turning from the ballot to the bullet. He thinks self-governing people do not have that option. Now, if the government becomes subversive of the ends of government, right? if the people, even in a free regime, see that the government has, is establishing a pattern that could lead to their eventual uh, uh, en enslavement, right? the, the free regime looks like it's becoming a despotic one. Does Lincoln believe in the right of revolution? Yeah, he says it explicitly in uh, his address uh, on the Mexican-American War. Uh, and he also brings it up as president, which is an odd thing when you're in power to talk about people getting you out of power using uh, 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 lawless means. Uh, so it's, uh, Lincoln is emphatic about this right. The right of revolution is a, notice, it's not a legal right. You don't have to write that in to your constitution. Why? Where is that right written, as it were? It's yeah, it's a natural right. It's written on your heart. Go ahead. But the right of revolution has to be a result of reason, not of passion. Good. You can't get Good. angry and revolt. You have to reason your way to revolt. Yeah, you have to figure out whether you have enough uh, reason to be angry <laughs> and then to adopt uh, uh, prudently means that will accomplish the objective, make sure that the solution isn't worse, the cure isn't worse than the disease. And this becomes right an argument Yes, uh, we're going to have a whole session devoted to their arguments for what they were doing. Um, I mean, we're going to see that Lincoln claims that what they're doing is actually anarchic. Yeah, it's, it's, not, not revolution. it's not revolution, exactly. Uh, but we, we're not content, at least I think to be fair and to, and to teach your students this, to be fair, the, the best thing to do, of course, or the first thing to do is to actually ask the, the, the seceding states, what are the reasons that you have? for the actions you were taking. How did they understand themselves? Did they understand themselves as exercising the right of revolution? Or was their claim a legal constitutional claim? That their departure was something that was legi a legitimate expression of law-abiding people. In other words, it wasn't the right of revolution. We'll, we'll, we'll have that conversation uh, when we get to that uh, session. Uh, so, increasing disregard for law. The fact is that both north and south of the, the Mason-Dixon line, according to Lincoln, people are using lawless means to accomplish otherwise uh, uh, lawful ends. They're becoming impatient with uh, the processes, the ordinary processes of civil government to accomplish their objective. Would Lincoln, Go ahead. Would Lincoln use mob law early on like this instead of mob rule or mob mentality? Because, you mean the phrase? Know, yeah, the phrase. Because I don't like the rule. I, the, the mob law makes makes me feel bad. Because that doesn't. It's, it's, it's the, the the oxymoronic. Uh, yeah, it, that bothers me. I don't. I don't think he's. Uh, Does he ever change to mob rule or mob? Um, he uses mobocratic spirits. Um, he 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 does make it. Uh, I don't think. Uh, I'm trying to think if he, if he uses the term mob rule, because he also makes another speech um, no, I, where he calls it the lawless and mobocratic spirit. So, yeah, and I think Lincoln likes it better than mob law too, as well, because part of the Whig philosophy, the American Whig philosophy, was an emphasis on order, an emphasis on uh, sober reason. It wasn't a, a kind of a romantic impulse you know, kind of a passion for justice. No, for them it was, but through the orderly, systematic processes of government. 
So yeah, that's good. That's a, uh, I'll, that's a better way of putting it. Uh, mobocracy or uh, the mobocratic, mobocratic spirit is a better way. Now, um, look at the examples he gives. Um, what, what do we learn from the examples that he gives, uh, Mississippi and St. Louis in particular? Uh, why, why does he use uh, these examples to establish uh, his point? What is, what is he trying to suggest here? This is the uh, bottom of 27 and then uh, on to 28. What was legalized? So what does Lincoln point out about this very threat? Um, why do you need, in other words, a person like Lincoln to talk about this stuff now? Because if it grows so frequent as to become accepted, then whether it's um, invested in the law by the legislature or not, it becomes legal by practice. Okay, so the, the, the hard... The hard nut to crack here is precisely that people don't think it's a big deal right now. And they don't think it's a big deal because it's not affecting them. They aren't the gamblers or they aren't the ones engaging in what the greater portion of their neighborhood or society believes to be some pernicious activity. It hasn't happened to them. It hasn't happened to their family members or their friends or even innocent people in their neighborhoods. And therefore, since it isn't a, a big problem now, it won't ever be a big problem. They're not aware of it. Go ahead. It's always the same pattern that Thomas Jefferson did. He said, we've got to declare independence before it gets worse. You do the and you have to create a constitution before it gets worse. Okay. They're always trying to stop it before it gets So in, in a way, it's kind of preemptive action, right? That you take the action before it becomes too late to take action. In Lincoln's case, we don't want to wait till the danger is right in our face because then what will that be proof of? The game is over at that point. There is no self-governing regime at that point. You may have ink on paper somewhere that says you have a constitution. There may be a building where courts meet. But if you wait for these mobs to be right in your face, that will be the, the telltale sign that your self-government is over. In other words, you have actually allowed for the conditions to be created for the demise of self-government and for the rise of someone to exploit that situation. Go ahead. The way Lincoln uses language so precisely, I think the idea of mob law was chosen specifically. Justice, you know, the old saying is, the wheels of justice are slow but grind exceedingly fine. And what he's comparing that to is the mob law is a very coarse tool 
But once you're dead, it doesn't make any difference which way you got there. In fact, he says, uh, you know, killing the gamblers in societal terms is probably a good thing in the long run. Just you went about it the wrong way. The mob creates a law of its own because its decisions are final. Right. Better is to use the rule of reason in the law of force. Okay. Now, I want us to see what Lincoln does here. And, and again, I want to point this out because this is an early speech of Lincoln's, and I want you to see his genius on display here. Alan uh, implied uh, that, that Lincoln's, at least his prose early on, was a, was a little too flowery, too, uh, too, too purple. And you see this especially in the temperance address. Uh, I would say that there's an art to it. In other words, there's a reason why, especially in the temperance address, uh, his rhetoric uh, looks the way it does. But I want you to see uh, his political acumen here. What's curious in the St. Louis example is he gives you the story two times, doesn't he? Uh, there's two accounts of this, of what happens to Macintosh. And notice that the two accounts are not the same. There's a difference. Uh, let's pick this up. Uh, where it is on your page? Is that the middle of uh, 28? Now, notice, notice this. Uh, look, notice how he describes the details here. Forget the second story for a second. Look at the first one. Turn to that horror-striking scene at St. Louis. Now, right off the bat, even before you hear the details, are you going to be sympathetic towards the victim here or uh, uh, have a low view of the person who was killed? Sympathetic, because it strikes horror. Why does it strike horror? What does he say? A single victim. You feel bad about the person already. Was only sacrificed there. Short story. Tragic. Right? A mulatto man. Notice, he's mulatto here. What is he in the second account? He's Negro. Right? Mulatto at least means he's half white. Okay? People are more sympathetic. He has a name in the first account. Macintosh. It's personalized. He was seized, dragged, chained, burned to death. All within a single hour from the time he had been a free man. Attending to his own business at peace with the world. Now, was this a horrible thing that happened? Forget the, the, actually how it happened. Good night. Burned to death. Okay, notice who isn't mentioned by name in this. Uh, Lincoln doesn't mention Lovejoy. He only alludes to the Lovejoy death, <laughs> which would be definitely on the mind of his reader. But let's hold on that for a second. So according to this first account, mobs are bad because look what happens to decent, law-abiding citizens like you and I. What happens in the second rendition of the story? <laughs> Go ahead in the back. Uh, he has forfeited his life by the perpetration of an outrageous murder. Oh, did Lincoln for, forget to mention that in the first account? Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Look at this. Similar to is the correct reasoning. Apparently the first account that he gave us was not quite correct. There's something missing. You're shaking your head. Do you agree or disagree with Lincoln? It was not correct because that was the way Lincoln intended to say it in order to show the difference between mob law and real law. 
Okay, let's look, right? The burning, now he's not a mulatto, he's a Negro, right? Lincoln playing on the racial prejudice and animus of his audience. Negro, no name. He, he didn't sacrifice his life. He, it's now forfeited. Why? Perpetration of an outrageous murder upon the most, one of the most worthy and respectable citizens of the city. What did he do within an hour of his freedom? He killed somebody. In a very short time afterwards, right? He says, if he didn't die as he did, he must have died by the sentence of the law. As to him alone, he doesn't want the example to be set here, but as to him alone, it was as well the way it was as it could otherwise have been. In a very short space of time in this speech, Lincoln gives us two opposed accounts of what happened to this fellow named Macintosh. Why does he do that? Not justifiable, and yet in the second account, you're less sympathetic towards the victim. Why did why? I guess what I'm taking, what I'm asking here is, why does Lincoln give you one account where you feel bad about what, what happened, and then another account where? Actually, Lincoln says, you know, the, whether the mob killed him or whether it was, it was, it was going to, you know, he was going to get hung anyway. They had the, 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 the goods on this guy. Uh, why does he make you, why does he make you sympathetic in one account and actually not minding in the second account? Well, I think when you go back to the idea that he thinks that people can get out of hand and not really know what they're doing, just get caught up in the moment that he presents it in two different ways so that now, people's prejudices, or they don't know the whole story, and then they just like blow it out of proportion, and things get worse. Right, and well, go ahead. So on the other side, rule of law applies to everyone. Rule of law applies to everyone. And what is it? What what what's one of the problems with mobs? Is they don't. Yeah, passion. Right. It's that they don't reason correctly. Okay. Yeah, so what, what ignites them up is precisely the fact that they don't have all the facts. It's precisely that they're not meeting in a court of law where evidence has to be established and you have cross-examination, right, proof. What moves mobs? Words move mobs. Words. What does Lincoln do with words here? In one scenario... In that first account, was that an account that you think would have incited a mob? No. That, you guess what, if there was a mob, what would that mob have done? Defended him, right? And guess what some mobs do in the North regarding fugitive slaves? Yeah, they break into courts. Prevent them going into the courts or getting in prison. And if they are jailed, they break in to liberate them. Uh, mobs are moved by words. The question is, are, 
is this the kind of society that we want to create? One in which words are used in this fashion to secure ostensibly justice, but justice outside of the rule of law, outside of courts, outside of the law-making uh, process. You have a case where Lincoln gives two accounts, one incorrect, as it were, and one with more correct reasoning. And the question is, what kind of society or what are the conditions that will create for correct reasoning to secure justice? Is it just the word of mouth rumor mill that will produce a lynching at the drop of a hat? Or is it one in which words have to be in a particular setting, say a court or a legislative assembly, to produce the kind of justice that will redound to our benefit over time and over the long haul. Norman? Isn't it almost, I mean, later on in this, it talks about how the pillars of the temple have... Yeah, right at the end, he, he brings it up. And we need to rebuild that. Isn't it almost saying that as time has gone on, the American society has deteriorated and we're almost returning back to the state of nature and the social contract has sort of drifted out of existence because... With the social contract, we bring law and order and structure to the society. Whether a mob, we lose that. Yeah, uh, I want us to look particularly at what what pillars he thinks have crumbled and what we need to replace those. But that's kind of the culmination of his speech. So let let's see how he walks us up until that point. Uh, but I think you're right. He's going to he's going to suggest that uh, our generation, the 1830s and, and uh, late 1830s. There's something markedly different about that generation than the generation that produced the, the institutions that are conducive of political and, and uh, civil and religious liberty. He says something has changed. And that's why Lincoln thinks there's a danger here that was not present at the founding. And Lincoln wants to alert us to this. Okay. All right. Um, well, if that's the danger, if the danger is these mob law... Uh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'll, uh, I'll take his uh, advice here and not keep referring to it as mob law, but this mobocratic spirit. If this mobocratic spirit is present, it isn't pervasive. If it was pervasive, you know, it would be over. We wouldn't have uh, uh, created a situation of anarchy. But, but he shows us the steps by which this could become pervasive, and therefore we're better off heading it off uh, at the outset. If there's this danger, then the obvious question that he, he leads us to is, how do we defend against it? Okay. What's his answer? And this is one of the more famous uh, paragraphs, passages in, in this uh, speech and even in all of uh, Lincoln's writings. How do we defend against the threat of uh, mob violence to secure justice? What does he offer as a solution? This is on uh, page 30, I guess. Yeah, page 30. Strict observance of the law. Law abidedness. Uh, can someone read that paragraph, uh, the one that begins, the question recurs, how shall we fortify against it? And, and just uh, take us through that whole paragraph and then we'll comment on it. Question recurs, how shall we fortify against it? The answer is simple. Let every American, every lover of liberty, every well-wisher to his posterity swear by the blood of the revolution never to violate, in the least particular, the laws of the country, and never to tolerate their violation by others. 
As the Patriots of 26 did to the support of the Declaration of Independence, so to the support of the Constitution and laws, let every American pledge his life, his liberty, and his sacred honor. Let every man remember that to violate the law is to trample on the blood of his father and to tear the character of his own and his children's liberty. Let reverence for the laws be breathed by every American mother to the lisping babe that prattles on her laplet and be taught in schools, in seminaries, and in colleges. Let it be written in primers, spelling books, and in almanacs. Let it be preached from the pulpit, proclaimed in legislative halls, and enforced in courts of justice. And, in short, let it become the political religion of the nation. And let the old and the young, the rich and the poor, the grave and the gay of all sexes and tongues and colors and conditions sacrifice unceasingly upon its altars. All right, well done. Political religion is a phrase that Lincoln uh, highlights himself. He has that underlined in his text. That's why it's italicized in yours. Um, this is the only time in all of the extant writings that we have of Lincoln, this is the only time he ever uses that phrase, political religion. Um, we've already defined it, right, as reverence for the laws, support for the Constitution and the laws. Let's think back again about the danger that we're trying to uh, thwart. Uh, mob, uh, mob, the, this mobocratic spirit, mobocracy, this appeal to vigilante justice, uh, Lincoln doesn't like... Uh, for the immediate reasons, obviously, right? Because uh, more often than not, you're going to end up uh, hanging the wrong person. And, and, but ultimately, he says, what does it lead to in society? We didn't comment on this uh, uh, enough, I think. And, and this is going to come back, so we need to look at this. What, what does it sow the seeds of in, in society? The people longing for the strong rulers okay. Yeah, the worst thing about mobocracy is, in a way, not even so much the individuals who are the victims of it. The worst thing about it is, is it undermines the good people's attachment to their government. You want... Oh, go ahead. Would he be using the French Revolution as an example? Uh, he doesn't mention it specifically, but that's a, that's mean, a that's total case in point. I think sure. that's something that they could refer to that they all knew the history of, how this mob started out with good intentions and then turned on itself and created a situation that was worse than it was before. Yeah, fairly recent history. Right. Right? Yes. Uh, I, think that's, I think that's back there. Why do people have government? It's to be protected in their rights. But if it turns out that you're that even innocent people are worried about whether they're going to be protected from the rumor mill, as it were. Okay. They will lose their affection. They become disaffected uh, with their uh, present administration of the laws and therefore be more open to at least someone who can come in. Forget about my rights. I just want to survive. They'll be more open to someone coming in uh, and claiming to act on their behalf. Go ahead. Is it his fear, though, I guess, that they are losing the principles of the Declaration, as we talked about, the idea of the right of revolution using reason rather than passion, and that there's really this loss of those, the principles there of the Declaration that grounded this nation 
us that generation has actually passed away, and now you have a new generation of Americans who never experienced the revolution, mm -hmm. and never were in the discussion of um, these ideas, and so there needs to be a renewing, it seems he's talking about, of talking about these principles and reestablishing the hearts of I think that that's plausible, but does he does he talk at length about the, the principles of the regime here? When is he when is he most explicit and direct about uh, the value of that which we already have, the goodness of that which we already have? Where in the speech does he talk about that most? Right, that very paragraph he talks about the Declaration of Independence. But what I'm saying is, does he spend time in this speech? Uh, explicating the Declaration of Independence or laying out those principles? On page 31, he just briefly says, but it may be asked, why suppose danger to our political yeah. institutions? Mm -hmm. And he says, then he goes on to examine whether there is a sufficient reason to suppose the danger. And he, it, it's very quick. Yeah, he doesn't spend a lot of time. So what I'm saying to Raymond is, it, it's clear, for example, when the danger gets closer, what do you find Lincoln doing? In other words, later in his career, <laughs> yeah, so this what is happens in the... Oh, ab yes, I think so. So that's why I say it's plausible <laughs> that that's there, but it, apparently the danger isn't so, um, so close that he thinks the country needs to be reminded yet. He assumes that they know the value of it. He begins a speech talking about civil and religious liberty. Uh, he, be he, be he begins the speech talking about what their duty is. Uh, yeah, both in a philanthropic way in terms of uh, uh, their successful example will be good for the world as well, but they have duty to their posterity, uh, justice to themselves, that they need to hold on and preserve what their, their, the, the founders did. In other words, what they didn't erect, they need to make sure stays standing. Okay? Uh, it's when the danger comes closer that Lincoln finds it necessary to take us back to the founding, to remind us of a, the proper reading, in his mind, the proper reading of the Declaration of Independence, what all men really means as opposed to what the Chief Justice thinks it means or uh, Senator uh, Stephen Douglas uh, thinks it means. Um, he does think there's a danger here, but he wants us uh, to deal with it before it gets uh, as bad as it does, of course, in 1860. Um, let, me, let me just take us back real quickly to this uh, one passage. Um, it is, the bottom of 29. He says, by such things, the feelings of the best citizens will become more or less alienated from it, right? If mobocracy becomes pervasive. Thus, it will be left, right? The American regime will be left without friends or with too few and those few too weak to make their friendship effectual. At such a time and under such circumstances, Men of sufficient talent and ambition will not be wanting or lacking to seize the opportunity, strike the blow, and overturn that fair fabric, which for the last half century has been the fondest hope of the lovers of freedom throughout the world. Uh, notice how he describes these men. Talent and ambition. What does he say about their character? They're geniuses. Yeah. But what I mean, what does he say about their character here? Does he call them evil men here? No, notice that. Uh, the, the, the towering geniuses passages were, were, were leading up to that. Here at least, all he says is, when, the, when, when society has become a shambles around you, there are going to be 
crooked, evil, vicious men. No, he doesn't say that. He says they're going to be men with talent and, keyword, ambition, who say, I got to take care of this situation. But what are they going to do in order to take care of the situation? What do they do with regards to the government that had been established? They overturn it. And so the question remains, uh, and, and, and this is the question that's answered uh, shortly uh, with his reference to Towering Genius. The question remains, what do you do in a society to make sure that men of talent and ambition direct that talent and ambition for the good rather than for ill, rather than for merely satisfying uh, what he will call shortly their ruling passions, which is for fame. What do you do with those who want glory? Uh, in other words, we've heard of Napoleon. We've heard of Caesar. We've heard of Alexander, but especially Napoleon, right? Within, within a generation almost, right? Uh, are these guys merely historical figures? We will never have an Attila the Hun in the United States because that just happened a long time ago. Right? This is a world that has yet to see Mao, Hitler, Stalin. Oh, yeah, that stuff just happens on the other side of the Atlantic and the yeah. Pacific. Right? That can't happen here because why? Because it hasn't happened here? What, what do we do as Americans? How is it that we ought to think? And what are the sorts of institutions that will channel these sorts of folk into becoming your Churchills and your Lincolns, your Washingtons, rather than your Stalins, your Hitlers, your Napoleons? I think that's what this speech is about. <coughs> What is it that the American people can do so that when you have these guys crop up in your midst, you can put them to good use <laughs> rather than bad use? Lincoln thinks political religion is the fundamental way that every citizen can contribute to creating conditions that will never allow someone like that. Not to be born. We can't prevent them being born. But at, when they are born... We could create the conditions, the conditions uh, uh, within which their ambition and their talents could be put to good use, okay? rather than uh, to uh, overturn uh, the, that fair fabric uh, uh, of self-government. Uh, so reverence for the laws. Now, uh, actually, let me, let me pause there and, and see if we have any questions before I move us uh, along further. It's more of a comment. Go ahead. reminding me, I think, at some point, before the revolution, John Adams writes in his daughter, you know, how do I make my work by the world? You know, am I going to be able to equal to my times and then find what? And that, but you may have Lincoln thinking, we're the next generation from the founders. And how are we going to make our mark following in their trail? Yes, yes. Uh, and and it, this, uh, if you read the introduction, you don't need to read the introductions, by the way, to these various speeches. The most important thing is to actually just read the writings themselves. Uh, but in the introduction, uh, Fournieri points out that this is one of the most controversial speeches that Lincoln ever uttered. Uh, and the controversy among historians and, and political scientists is precisely over who Lincoln is talking about here. Men of sufficient talents and ambitions. 
Could Lincoln be talking about himself, in other words? Uh, and there have been a, a few uh, writers who make the claim that, yeah, this is Lincoln really thinking out loud about the choices in front of him and, and uh, that he is one of these towering geniuses. I, I, I take issue with that. I, I disagree. And I think that the speech itself will show us that Lincoln is not talking about himself in this way here. But we, we, we haven't finished uh, the argument yet. But we'll, this, is, this is really the, the, the crux uh, of the controversy in this speech. Is Lincoln essentially saying to the nation, you've got to give me something decent to do or I'm going <laughs> to, you know, if I can't rule it, I'll wreck it. that point is too late. Um, I, 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 would, I would call it more like a succession of choices. Uh, it's not just one choice, that you have to, con and, I, and I think that's what this, this speech actually argues for over and over again. How often do we have to choose the law over vigilantes? Every day. I mean, it has to be a religion, according to Lincoln, a political religion. He doesn't want it to replace revealed religion, uh, but he does say, as citizens, we have to I mean, he uses very religious language in that passage, right? He says, in fact, it has to be preached from the pulpit. Uh, he says that it needs to be you know, taught in seminaries. He, he says, well, seminary is actually a more general term for just uh, higher education. Uh, uh, but he says, uh, you know, preach from the pulpit, sacrifice unceasingly upon its altars. That's not religious language. I don't know what is. Uh, but people have to be devo as devoted to this way of thinking about their form of government as they do their rituals uh, that, that define their relationship to their maker. That's how important it is. Our individual daily contribution to our self-governing existences, that we constantly choose to obey and, uh, the laws, even when it looks like the laws are slow, or that the laws may even be in, in, uh, enshrining something like slavery that we disagree with. Okay? Uh, Go ahead. Well, it, it just seems like um, you know both George Washington and Abraham Lincoln are excellent examples for our students of men who chose on a daily basis to form their character in this way. Lincoln, um, through this concept of rule of law, in which he chose the rule of law over his own personal convictions about what necessarily was, was morally the right thing to do, the rule of law was always the morally right thing to do for him, and thus he was even willing to make himself miserable in order to obey it. And, you know, George Washington, I do a thing with my students where I show them his, uh, his rules of, of daily living, and I make them for a day, you know, just to demonstrate, which we get very interesting responses from that, but anyway, but just to demonstrate, you know, Washington did not become a man who was ready and willing to turn over power to someone else when he could have kept it for himself overnight, 
You know, that was that was a, a piece of his character that was developed, it was choices that he made. And the hope of obviously teaching my students to maybe in the direction themselves, I don't know how. Very good. That is, but there you go. Tucker. But, yeah. And I was just, you know, I kind of dovetail off your point there. Um, you have these good leaders like Lincoln and Washington throughout history, but you also, you know, just coming to mind, you have some bad examples in American history, like a Huey Long, uh, you know, who probably had very similar background, uh, at least growing up, you know, uh, socioeconomically to a Lincoln, but made some bad choices and became drunk with power as, as compared to what Lincoln and Washington and others have done. There's a movie uh, based on Robert Van Warren's book that's coming out. Sean Penn, I think, is actually playing the lead. Great casting. Yeah. Uh, that raises a very question that we need to talk about now. What about when the laws are bad? Uh, do you obey those laws? Uh, what does what does Lincoln what does Lincoln say? Civil disobedience, bottom page thirty. Talks is he in favor of civil disobedience? Well, remember what what is the, the the general? Remember remember the title of this speech yeah. on the perpetuation of our political institutions and what's the the <laughs> fundamental way you thwart the danger of mobocracy? Um, Obeying the laws. Now what? So he, but he, he can't give a speech about obeying the laws without addressing the clearest example that might rule against it. And, and this is, by the way, something good to, to teach your students is uh, to make the, base case, the best case for your position, try to figure out what the strongest arguments against that position are. Uh, make the case of your enemy as strong as at, it could be made. And then see if you could knock it down. Use that as a way to test your own opinion. Go ahead. He says those laws ought to be repealed. Okay, but what? Well, how about how how quickly can you do that? Not very. Okay, so in the not very time is what I want to know. What do we do? He says be religiously observed. Religiously observed. Now that means how often? I mean, are there any exceptions to the Ten Commandments? I mean, do this as often as you can. <laughs> No. <laughs> yeah. Would someone like Bennett from our, from our discussion? Some, someone like who? Bennett. Bennett. Oh, Lerone Bennett. Okay. He would look at this and say, "We did that for almost a hundred years." Because Martin Luther King did civil disobedience. Malcolm X was a little bit more violent. The at least he preached. Yeah, he was yeah. never, as far as I can tell, he never hit a person in his life. Well, after he joined the nation of Islam, he never he hit a person in his life. Still did civil disobedience. He still did. He still violated the law. I mean, Bennett would look at that and say, this is where Lincoln's off base. Okay. So what, what does Lincoln say about civil disobedience? Uh, well, bad, bad laws, yes. Let's start there. He says, well, sure. If there's a bad law, guess how you should approach bad laws? The same way you approach mobs, right? If you want to seek justice, how do you get to do it? That's what we've decided. A self-governing people willingly impose rules upon themselves. That's the big difference with the rest of the world, right? The rest of the world says, somebody else gets to tell you what to do. We've decided to do without rules whatsoever? No. We've decided, once we've thrown off a regime, to now put those rules upon ourselves. That's what self-government, self-rule means, is we willingly abide by rules that we impose upon ourselves. Now, what if some of those, one or some of those rules is a bad one? First thing out of the box, Lincoln says, is, well, yeah, we'll get rid of those laws. But until such time, what does he say you have to do? Still, while they continue in force for the sake of example. We saw how allowing little mobs 
create more pervasive mobs. They breed by example. In the same way, he says, they should be repealed as soon as possible. Still, while they continue in force for the sake of example, they should be religiously observed. Every single one? Does he give us no out? He does say, uh, with the least, po- he said, proper legal, legal provisions be made for them with the least possible delay. But, till then, if not too intolerable, hmm. be born with. That's very, if not too intolerable, what's too intolerable? What's that? That's who you are. You want to elaborate on that? It's, it's just, it matters what, how the law is affecting you. I mean, I'm going to be able to tolerate more than someone else, depending on my situation. So do we leave it to every individual person to decide? I mean, I don't, how, how big a crack is this? Raymond, were you going to comment on that? You want to comment on something else? Something more important? Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) This happens all the time in my class. I ask a question, a student puts their hand up, and they say, well, I don't really want to talk about that. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) Forget what I just said. Not important. You probably would know better with with Blackstone. Blackstone says that if a law violates a state of nature, that law is not law. You You know what I mean? So what was Blackstone's? Maybe that would help us with this. Yeah, I don't know sufficiently, uh, I don't know uh, enough Blackstone to know whether Blackstone was, ca- was uh, therefore say, making an argument for diso- uh, civil disobedience. He may say it's not law, it's a nullity, and yet, under the English Constitution, you still had to obey it until you brought Parliament around to your way of thinking. I don't, I don't, I, I don't know if Blackstone, uh, Blackstone argues for disobe- uh, civil disobedience. He may, but uh, I, I've not read him sufficiently uh, to know that. But we know, just in our readings uh, last week, that he talked about the state of nature. He talked about the rule, uh, not the rule of law, but the natural law. And that which was counter to it, uh, he considered not to be a true law. And it's the same, it's a, almost a word-for-word foreshadowing what King will argue in the letter from a Birmingham jail. This line, if not to intolerable, let it be born with, um, I think he's leaving, there's a whole world of silence in between that sentence and the next sentence, because he says, but whatever you do, don't do mob rule. So he's, maybe he's leaving room open from some other time. I'm thinking of his reaction to the Dred Scott decision. Yes. Where he says, you know, when they are overruling the Missouri Compromise, you know, who are they to be able to, to say this? And what we really need to do is wait for a while and see how, you know, people interpret and come to accept the Supreme Court decision. Just because they said it right now doesn't mean immediately, you know, that becomes the Bible. You know, God has spoken with this, and um, so that's what you do with the battle, maybe you wait for a while and see really. Well, what do you do while you're waiting? Does Lincoln just think that the Republican no, Party, in fact... Like Republicans uh-huh. to get <laughs> All right, so while we wait, there is actually something to do. Um, in fact, he claims, and we're going to get to this when we look at uh, uh, that, that period in time, in 1857-1858, he's going to make the argument that even though Dred Scott still remains a slave, because that's what the court ruled. As it affected that party, yeah. I mean, it would be a total, it would be revolutionary to claim that even if the court made a mistake, that it shouldn't apply to the actual parties to that case. It has to, or else courts don't make any sense. Uh, but simply because it, we have to abide by it in that particular decision, that does not mean we should just lay down and wait till the court wakes up and decides that they've done something wrong. How will the court know if they've made a mistake? 
especially a court that ruled seven to two, almost unanimous. Shouldn't somebody kind of indicate to them <laughs> that there's a difference of opinion? Uh, who does the court, after all, belong to? The people. the people. And if the people do not believe that their servants, public servants, civil servants, are doing them good, isn't it incumbent upon the people to make that opinion known? The problem was, and we'll see this in the House Divided Address, among other places, and especially in Lincoln's uh, speech uh, on the Dred Scott case in 1857, the problem was there were people in high places who were preaching that precisely because the court has ruled, discussion should cease. That any kind of discussion criticizing that court is revolutionary discussion. It undermines the rule of law. It creates the, sows the seeds for anarchy. They essentially try to make the argument that Lincoln makes here. And Lincoln says, uh-uh, that's not true. Um, we have every right to comment on the court, especially when we think they've made a huge error, especially when they, it's the first one. It doesn't meet with settled uh, legal and public opinion. Uh, it doesn't follow prevailing precedents up until that time or until fairly recently. It will give a, a list of reasons why or when people can uh, argue with the court and even take political, not mob, but political action to force the court to overturn their decision. And in fact, that's precisely what happens during this first term in office. June 19th, 1862, what does Congress do? Dred Scott is still good law. It's still on the books. Dred Scott says that Congress does not have the authority to ban slavery in the federal territories. Guess what Congress does on June 19th, 1862? One line. They ban slavery. Lincoln says in 1858, when he's running against Stephen Douglas, if I'm elected, guess what I'm going to do? I w if a law should come up banning slavery in the federal territories, am I going to say, well, Dred Scott case ruled that uh, we don't have this authority, so, uh-uh. Lincoln says, I and my party stand for the view that the proper constitutional interpretation of Congress's authority with regard to slavery, can we touch it in the states where it already exists? No. No, 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 no. Do we have to even abide by the fugitive slave law? That pernicious fugitive slave law of 1850. Lincoln says, I wish we had a better one. But until we change it, we got to abide by it. But can we deal with slavery in the federal territories despite the fact that the Supreme Court ruled it, uh, against us? Yes, we can, and that's precisely what they did. He didn't get to do it when he was a senator because he never got to be a senator. But when he was a president, he signed that law. Uh, he signed that bill into law. Go ahead. But how does Lincoln reconcile his, on the one hand, saying blacks should not be given the same political and social rights as whites, and then say saying, that, go ahead. well, he did. He said the feelings don't admit it, and neither do the feelings of the people. I mean, that's. We read that in the speech yesterday. He doesn't say that he, he doesn't think they ought not to have that. What he says is, I have, I do not, and have not. When it comes to time, there's three phases, right? Past, present, future. He says, for the present and in the past, I have never been in favor of it. What does that leave open? The future. 
All right. Okay. So, so that's what I'm saying. When, when, when Alan took us through that, he took he, he was correct as far as it went, but I think there's more to be said there. I don't I don't I don't think what Lincoln said there was the worst thing that he could have said in Charleston. I think it, it makes sense, and he wrote it. He, he said it like a lawyer. And if we if we take time with it, you'll see what what he actually invites his audience to do. Okay. But anyway, but but, but, but go the ahead. question still remains: What happens when the law laid down, like in Dred Scott? inherently denies the person involved any legal recourse for giving their objection to that. I mean, the, the, the case itself laid down a law which said you can't participate in the government through the ballot. You right. can't participate in you the can't government even sue court. through any kind of vocal decision. So when all of your legal options are shut down to you, what is left? But mob rule. I mean, how else are you to let your objection to that decision be known as a member of the society? You're asking what Dred Scott's options are? No, I'm asking according to Lincoln, what are what are Dred Scott's options? According to Lincoln, Dred Scott, it, 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 the law bears harshly on Dred Scott. In other words, Dred Scott loses. Did he deserve to lose? No. Does he lose? Yes. In his case, he loses. Now, does Dred Scott? Have the natural right to revolt against this government? Yes. Is that the prudent thing for Dred Scott? It's up to Dred Scott to determine. And what does he determine? You know, in his case, it would be the most imprudent thing. You know why? Because at that point in time, he was owned by an abolitionist. So when the court rules that he does not get his freedom, what happens a month later? He's free. He's free. Okay, so in that, that's where the Declaration calls for this. The Declaration says prudence dictates what one ought to do. The prudent thing for a guy like Dred Scott in that case was, man, the law was against me even though it should have been for me. This was an unjust decision. And Lincoln agrees with that. But for Scott, for the sake of self-government, guess what he has to sacrifice unceasingly upon the altar? His own rights at that point in time. That's the sacrifice he makes for the sake of, as it were, the greater good, and knowing in his own situation what's going to happen. He gets freed, and he lives, uh, unfortunately, just lives one more year, and then he dies the following year. But in other words, you may have the natural right to something, but your conditions and circumstances will dictate what the prudent course of action is. Does Lincoln suggest that this, since the Dred Scott decision um, implied or stated word for word that this was not just a decision on Dred Scott's, involving Dred Scott's natural rights, but the natural rights of all black Americans. Yes. So does Lincoln suggest that all black Americans at that point should have laid down their natural rights on that altar? No. And obeyed the law? What does Lincoln suggest they do? Support the Republican Party. Because <coughs> guess what they the Dred Scott... They can't vote. Guess it. Well, not they in Illinois. Not in Illinois. In certain states they can vote. But not in Illinois. Well, not the ones who are enslaved. Oh, I thought you were talking about. Well, first we have to talk about people who are free to vote. There are black people who are free to vote in the United States at that time. Right? Isn't only three states have black citizens have any right to vote? Yeah, the question becomes if you're a black person, whether enslaved or free, if you can't act, are there people who have the freedom to act? Who are those people? And what should you hope for? But they're still, I mean, the people are still largely bigoted. And I, I wonder if the founders would agree with what you're saying about the Dred Scott decision. Well, you know, be prudent because I believe it was Madison or Jefferson who said, people suffer while the suffer, suffering is sufferable. Right. And they themselves 
didn't want to suffer anymore and said, this is our time. So to ask for Dred Scott or for people who don't have a voice in government, which they really don't at this point, and they don't until the 1960s, to say they couldn't wait. You know, how long do you wait? Martin Luther King raised the same issue. Well, you're not just, I guess I'm, I'm trying to show you here that simply because you don't exercise the right of revolution, the other alternative is not to just not to do anything. Notice what the Dred Scott case ruled. They ruled that Congress had no authority to ban slavery in the federal territories. What did they essentially say about the Republican Party? <laughs> you have no reason for being. Did the Republican Party then just disband? No. No. So blacks did have a voice. And they also had a voice with some other parties, the Liberty Party. They also had a voice with the abolition movement. So what I'm saying is prudence dictates not just what you do, but what these other options are. Okay? And again, is the solution that you're going to adopt going to be one that's worse than the problem that you're trying to solve? But do you think Lincoln would have said that the Republican Party does represent African Americans? Do you think he would have come yes. out? Yes. Because, like, I'm just thinking about the he, same he thought it represented every human being on Earth. He thought it was a very philanthropical or philanthropic principle that they were defending. They believed all men were created equal. The Democratic Party did not. When you say out loud that every human being, not in America, but on Earth, deserves the protection of their natural rights to life, liberty, and equality. Whose friend are you? The friend of every human being on Earth. But he didn't guarantee it or instill it for anybody else. Like, oh, he's he passed you. the, the Emancipation Proclamation, which made null and void the Second Confiscation Act, which actually would have freed somebody, as we didn't get to discuss yesterday, which I hope Gelsa will go into later today. Uh, not and today. We'll get to it when we get to the session on. Um, we have one whole session on the Emancipation Proclamation. We have one whole session, an hour and a half, where we get to talk about that. So we are going to get to talk about it. I just, I, I just, I disagree. I think so. Well, once we get there, then we, you can tell me what you disagree with. But right now, I don't think we, we're not equipped to, to answer that right now. The thing is, it's just I don't see how the Republican Party was a voice for for enslaved people or free blacks. Okay. Well, 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 actually, you know, we'll get to it before the Emancipation Proclamation. We'll get to it when we look at the Lincoln-Douglas debates tonight after dinner. Uh, we'll get to it, well, we should get to it this afternoon at, the, at our 4 o'clock session. When we look at, when Lincoln, look, notice, we're, we're kind of making uh, uh, too big a leap here. We're talking about America in 1838 in, in light of events that take place 20 years later. Dred Scott case of 57, following three years after the... Uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, following four years after the, the, the Great Compromise of 1850. So I think we need to wait for that history to take place and then actually talk about a Republican Party that's in existence, a Republican Party that's going to make an argument that the Supreme Court essentially says is unconstitutional. Okay, And whether what, what, uh, we're going to look at them in our next very next session, what, uh, session, what are we going to look at? The other anti-slavery movement, that which is what? The abolitionists, uh, the abolitionists. Are they the friends of free blacks and enslaved blacks in the United States? In spite of the fact that many of them, uh, some scholars argue a majority of abolitionists were bigots. Okay? Uh, but were they still the friend of the black men? Okay? 
So I think let's let's equip ourselves with the arguments, uh, uh, both means and ends, of the abolitionists. Let's see what the Whig Party produces in the way of their own demise in terms of the, the, the Republican Party, and then find out what would have been the prudent thing for whether an enslaved black or a free black. For example, what is the action that Fred Douglas takes? <coughs> does, does he preach the right of revolution? No, but certain abolitionists did, William yes. Harrison. Yes. So then the question becomes, who's right? I, I, but again, we're having a conversation about something that we don't even have in front of us yet. We will have it in the next session. We're going to build it and build it and build it and then see by the time the, 18, the 1860 comes along, where should they have put, uh, what basket should they have put their eggs in? I guess that what I'd love to see the two of you kind of address here and I'm a great fan of Lincoln. I, I love I love his writing, and I think he was one of our, our, I tell my students, he's my favorite president and whatnot, probably my favorite figure in history. So I'm very much on the same page with you as far as his greatness. But something <laughs> that, something that continues to, to bother me though, I mean, our modern understanding of all men are created equal is that if I am going to have equality with you, then I must be able to protect my rights to the same level that you can, and I cannot defend on him, or depend on him to do it for me. That in order to have equality, I must personally be able to, through legal means, protect my own rights. And I don't see that coming from the Founding Fathers. I don't see that coming from Lincoln. I see them still acting under this overarching umbrella of, um, I don't know, call it patronism, that someone else can speak for me and defend my rights. And I see that as a woman in America. I see that indefinitely in their opinions regarding their wives, their daughters, their sisters, their mothers, and, and the racial issue too, that you know, women don't need to vote because their husbands can vote for them. Um, and then their husbands will protect their rights. And obviously that's total BS. Well, so, you think it's obvious that it's total BS. I don't think it's obvious that it is total BS. I think, I think there is, just, so just, 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 right. it's not obvious to me. Okay, well maybe we're working from a different, a different understanding Clearly. of the world around us. That's obvious. <laughs> but, but I, I guess that I guess that, that, that what I'd like to know is one, did the founding fathers and or Lincoln at some point recognize this this inherent need of each individual member of society to defeat have a political means of defending their rights? Lincoln argued or, in favor of, of the women's right to vote in 1836. True. But he suggests that the African American can support white representatives in the Republican Party to represent their interests without having a direct voice themselves. So there's still yeah, this that concept. That raises the question. That raises that, the question. Why you know, did he make that argument? We'll get to it. I'm wondering. I'm wondering. <laughs> That's what I want to know. Okay. You know? Good. And, and those are the, the right questions. Those are those are the right questions. Absolutely the right questions. What I want to do is. I don't want anyone for me to defend Lincoln. I want Lincoln. I want us to dig into Lincoln and see, man, how can he say this? How can he square it with what he says over here? 
I, and that's what I'm saying. We're barely equipping ourselves. I mean, this is our first session on Lincoln, and we're only at 1838, <laughs> his second term as a state rep. Uh, there, there's, there's a lot here, but there's a lot more to come to fill out that question, especially by the time we get to Dred Scott, and even more importantly, especially by the time we get to 1854. Lincoln's not the only person talking. You get Stephen Douglas and his view of popular sovereignty, that's what Lincoln has to beat. If he can't even beat that argument, we can't even go to the question of civil and political rights for blacks in the state of Illinois. Lincoln can't even begin this discussion if there isn't a consensus in the United States on the part of white people that for the sake of their own rights, they need to believe in the natural rights of all human beings. And with that belief, at least begin, not eradicating slavery in the states where it already exists, but since we have as a nation, for the most part, stopped its import, 1808. Not completely, but in, in, in 1808, at least there's a law in the books. Lincoln is the first one to enforce it to the point of death. We've stopped the source. Now, the other way to kill slavery is not only stop the supply, but stop its expansion. There is a debate. I mean, this is such a mundane point. I'm just going to point it out to how unmundane it was at the time. There is a political party that is created at the state level in 1854, competes at the national level for the first time in 1856, not 1838. 1856, that political party is the Republican Party that fuses a bunch of disparate elements, anti-Catholics, anti-foreigners, anti-blacks for sure, Old conscience wigs. How to phrase, I don't want to say decent Democrats, but, <laughs> but open-minded Democrats. They find one principle to unite all of these disparate elements to create the Republican Party. You know what that one principle is? No extension of slavery into the federal territories. There is not unanimity about that opinion in the United States. In fact, it is a highly contentious issue even among the North, the South has written it off. They want to, but they get to the point, states' rights, they want a federal slave code by the time 1860 rolls around. Okay? So forget it. We've already written off that portion of the country. Even in the free North, the so-called free North, there is not a consensus about the notion that slavery is a wrong and therefore we should at least prevent it. Where we have power, i.e. where we have authority, at least prevent it from extending itself and further entrenching itself in the society. If there is a debate over that issue, and there is, it's the Lincoln-Douglas debate. It's the Republican Party versus the Northern Democratic Party. If that debate is, hasn't even been resolved, Lincoln can't even talk about uh, civil and political equality for blacks in, uh, in, in the state of Illinois. He can't even talk about the Fugitive Slave Act, which is on its face inequitable. He says, we need to abide by it. And we'll, we'll read this letter where he writes to Sam and Chase in Ohio and says, look, if you Republicans in Ohio in 1860 start raising a fuss over, start even talking out loud about repealing the Fugitive Slave Act, it will explode the party. In other words, you could be right on the issue of the Fugitive Slave Law. And in making it an issue at this point in time, not down the road, but at this point in time, if you make it an issue to make sure that your conscience is clean 
and end up destroying the Republican Party, what good have you done for the black man in the United States? Okay, that's that. Those are the stakes. Those are the stakes. Look at the letter we read today. Which, if we had time to talk about it, <laughs> if I would shut up, <laughs> look at this letter. Go ahead. Go look. Look, look at this letter. We didn't finish the Lyceum address. Nothing new. My class gets used to this. Letter to Williamson Durley. Right. What is the point? The general point Lincoln makes in that letter. Isn't it precisely this question? Do you remember this letter? This is in your packet, your binder, page 87. He writes this letter. Let me see if I can do this in a minute. Um, he writes this letter. Actually, we go to 1030, right? Yeah. He writes this letter to a guy who's a member of the Liberty Party. The Liberty Party is essentially abolitionist, uh, the abolitionist party of the day. The abolitionists did not want to vote for Henry Clay. Why didn't they want to vote for Henry Clay? For the obvious reason, because Henry Clay owned slaves. Abraham Lincoln was called Henry Clay, my beau ideal of a statesman. Henry Clay was his hero. And as of when Lincoln modeled his politics after Clay. Almost to the letter. Not quite, but almost to the letter. What happened? Because of the existence of the Liberty Party, the Whig Party had a divided vote in New York among other key states. And for the lack of several thousand votes, because uh, anti-slavery sentiment was divided, like, wow, we like Clay. Clay thinks slavery is bad, but he owns slaves. Liberty Party, at least there, it's clear. Slavery is an evil. It should have gotten rid of right away. Liberty Party is the abolition party. So the anti-slavery vote in New York was divided. What happened in New York? It went to the Democrats. What happened to slavery as a result, according to Lincoln in this letter? It was further emboldened because you had a party that now was an expansionist party. An expansionist for what reason? Give me land, lots of land. It was an expansionist party because they wanted to expand slavery. Lincoln tells this guy essentially in this letter, you may have thought you were casting a pure ballot, a ballot untainted by the stain of slavery because you refused to vote for a slaveholder. Guess what your vote produced? By voting for the Liberty Party, you were voting for the Democratic Party because you, it led to the defeat of the Whig Party, a party that at least believes that all men are created equal. Do they have slaveholders in their midst? Yes, just like we had slaveholders in our midst in 1776. And yet they believe that all men were created equal and you know, sacrifice or pledge to each other, right? Lives or fortunes and sacred honor to set up institutions that would lead to, ultimately, their hope was the eradication of slavery. Uh, so where is that? Uh, you, guys, are you, are you, are you guys on that page? All right, let me get on my page now. Letter to Williamson Durley. Uh, see that first paragraph? If the Whig abolitionists of New York had voted with us last fall, Mr. Clay would now be president with principles in the ascendance and Texas not annexed. Whereas by the division, the divided anti-slavery vote, all that either had at stake in this contest was lost. And indeed, it was extremely probable beforehand that such would be the result. Uh, would, would, uh, would be the result. 
Okay, next paragraph. Here's where he takes on the abolitionist front and center. We are not to do evil that good may come. Quote, unquote. That was a famous line of the Federalists. Uh, it should be Federalists. Yeah. The, the abolitionists. Lincoln says, this general proposition, it's correct. Yeah, doubtless. But did it apply? If by your votes you could have prevented the extension of slavery, would it not have been good and not evil? So have, uh, so to have used your votes, even though it involved the casting of them for a slaveholder, Henry Clay. So weird not to do evil that good may come. What does Lincoln do? He responds to this aphorism with the Bible. Another aphorism. Luke chapter 6, verses 42. 43 through 44. By the fruit of the tree is to be known. By the fruit of the tree is to be known. An evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit. If the fruit of electing Mr. Clay would have been to prevent the extension of slavery, could the act of electing have been evil? What he's trying to show is the same point I believe he's making in the Lyceum Address and which he makes as well in the Temperance Address which is that your means have to be conducive of their ends. But how you accomplish your objective is as important as the objective itself. It matters. Not just that you have the right opinion, the right objective or goal. In a society where people get to make choices about how you secure that goal, it matters that you adopt the means that are most prudent to achieve them. In short, it is not enough just to have and to spout the correct opinion or what you hold to be the right opinion. In a self-governing regime, it is incumbent upon you to do what with that opinion? Try to make it other people's opinions as well. And that requires persuasion. Uh, hands, I just want to ask you as a clarification, Lincoln, did not support the annexation of Texas and did not support the Mexican-American War. Correct. Because he felt that it would lead to, his main argument would have been that it would have led to the expansion of slavery in those areas. No, no. Um, he, in fact, he says in, in this letter that, you know what, I never really thought about the impact that the annexation of Texas would have on slavery. Um, and in fact, he says, and you know, he, he, I love the way he does this. In this letter, he does what he does sometimes in speeches. He, he puts you into his mind, and he says, you know, this is how I thought about it. And he'll even think about it and show you kind of detours. Like, you know, I thought maybe this would do this, but notice how it ends up with this. So instead, we, maybe we should try this way. Uh, ordinarily, people would just say, well, this is what I've concluded, da, da, da. They don't show where other strains of thought would have went. Lincoln does that to invite them to do the same themselves. In this speech, he says, what about annexation of Texas? He goes, you know, I really thought about it, it as an impact on slavery. In short, he had another reason why he didn't want the annexation of Texas. Um, They're in a Republican government, so why? Uh, well, there was slavery, though, was still, it was pretty clear that slavery was going was to go in there. So, um, go ahead. It's back to his question of supply and demand. If you annex... If Texas is not annexed to the country, there is only so much supply of slavery uh, in the United States, and that will overall reduce the number of slaves in the United States, thus putting slavery on a path to ultimate extinction. Right. Interestingly enough, though, what Lincoln says in this letter is he goes, well, 
if you annex, I mean, look, does annexation do anything about slavery in the United States? If we don't annex slavery, does that mean slavery wouldn't go into Texas? No. What keeps people from crossing the border with their slaves and becoming residents of this independent republic of Texas? Nothing. So he thought that the legal question of its annexation, in his mind, would not exacerbate the problem of slavery. He says, in fact, if Texas remained a, in its own state, the Lone Star State, right? My wife's from Texas. The Lone Star, right? Why that Lone Star? The emphasis on the fact that they were always their own, you know, not always. They at least had this one moment in time when they were independent. Fine. Good. All right. If Texas was its own nation state, and some slaveholders in the United States left to go to Texas, what does that do with slavery in the United States? It reduces it. It's like, great. Okay? But, so, not if they leave. Not if they leave. He assumes it's a fixed pie. It's a steady state. That's a very myopic assumption. Well, okay. Because given the natural population growth, they were going to fill the void very quickly. Okay, I don't want to get into that too much, but it's still, either way, that's going to happen regardless of whether Texas is asked or not. What Lincoln does say is if, if annex in Texas actually makes slavery more firmly entrenched in the United States, should we annex it? No. No. He says, so you can show me that this legal process by which we make, uh, legal constitutional process by which we make Texas a part of the United States, if you can show me that that actually does further entrench slavery in the United States, then yeah, I vote against it. Okay? Uh, we, we need to get it to die out, as he puts it, right? We should never knowingly lend ourselves directly or indirectly to prevent that slavery from dying a natural death. Uh, he, he calls it even an evil. The annexation is an evil if it, if it, if it doesn't uh, help us uh, get rid of slavery. Um, he, but, but even regardless of slavery, the Whig position on expansion was counter to that of the Democrats. The Democrats thought that prosperity lies in getting bigger. Bigger is always better. Remember elbow room, elbow room? That's the Democratic Party, right? The, the, the Whig Party believed, no, it's not about having more. It's about being more prosperous with what you have. And the, the great answer to the Democratic expansionist philosophy is in the Wisconsin Agricultural Address that we have you guys reading uh, later in the week. Uh, there he says that it's about cultivating your little plot of earth, that a well-cultivated acre lot will produce more than an unhusbanded or poorly husbanded 10-acre lot. That was his kind of benign way of trying to teach people that your lot in life, literally, <laughs> has more to do with your own efforts on that lot than the mere acquisition of more territory. And I think, in fact, he was speaking somewhat autobiographically here because guess who he lived with and saw this principle perversely acted out? His father constantly moved them from one territory to another to another. You know, you know in uh, Kentucky, then Indiana, finally Lincoln left when he was of age uh, to go to Illinois. And uh, what he saw in his own father was he, was he couldn't make do with what he had. He always thought the grass was greener somewhere else. And Lincoln said, that was a mistake. He essentially says this Wisconsin agricultural industry was a mistake. All right, um, I think that the, 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 the questions that were raised in this period are questions that will be abiding ones. In other words, uh, in other words the ones that even still remain answered or, or you're still confused or insufficiently answered to your, uh, to your satisfaction, we're going to keep coming back to them with each session. So, so 
Let's see if we can gather up uh, uh, some more material on it. Uh, sorry, we didn't quite get to the end of the Lyceum address, and there was a couple of points that were pretty important that we need to get to, but uh, I'll see if I can fold those in uh, uh, in subsequent sessions.